You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. The California report finds that a state gambit meant to fast-track approval of fire prevention projects is, so far, underwhelming. And green energy firms are supporting a strategy to breed more condors in captivity, to make up for the condors killed by wind turbines. After regional news and weather, fasten your seatbelts, because it's time for economic news, first from Gary Zimmerman, then from Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Utility giant Pacific Gas and Electric has agreed to pay over $55 million to end the threat of criminal prosecution for two major wildfires started by its equipment. Prosecutors from six Northern California counties brokered the deal, covering last year's Dixie Fire, the second largest blaze in state history, and the 2019 Kincaid Fire. Sonoma County District Attorney Jill Ravage says... Even if she was able to win a criminal conviction, PG&E would have faced smaller fines and could decline probation. We have limited tools in criminal law to deal with corporations. And what we were able to do here was to get a five-year agreement that they will be overseen, there will be an independent monitor, and that they will have to meet certain benchmarks. Ravage says the state attorney general should assist in prosecuting PG&E for wildfires, but the office declined to do so in Sonoma County. County prosecutors say the civil settlements will speed up payments to people whose homes were destroyed in the blazes. Although PG&E does not admit any wrongdoing, it says it welcomes a new level of transparency and accountability brought by the settlements. Let's stay on wildfires. California has millions of acres of overgrown forest land. It's raw fuel for potentially catastrophic wildfires. In late 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom announced a new program to dramatically speed up the state's wildfire prevention work. But an investigation from CAP Radio and the California Newsroom found the program hasn't resulted in a single completed project. Reporter Scott Rod has the story. It's called the California Vegetation Treatment Program, or CalVTP. It was designed to fast-track the environmental approval process for fire prevention projects, without compromising environmental protections. And if you ask state leaders how it's going, they'll paint a pretty rosy picture. Here's Wade Crowfoot, who leads the State Natural Resources Agency, at a legislative hearing in February. This California Vegetation Treatment Program, this essentially one-stop shop for permitting, for CEQA, for fish and wildlife permits, and for water board permits, um, is now in action, and it's starting to be used. Here's what he didn't mention. The state originally anticipated the program would result in 45,000 acres of completed forest management work in its first year. But more than two years in, CalVTP hasn't led to a single completed project. A few dozen projects have been approved. The Newsom administration declined repeated interview requests. In an email, a spokesperson characterized the program as a success, claiming it has expedited approval times. But that's not what the nonpartisan legislative analyst's office says. We didn't find you know, clear data showing that it had um, significantly expedited projects. 
That's Helen Kirsten with the LAO, testifying before state lawmakers in December. She added that it's still early days with the program. The idea behind CalVTP is pretty straightforward. The state performed one massive environmental review on over 20 million acres of state land. If a new project falls in that huge footprint, it can use the state's existing template instead of starting from scratch. But project managers I talked to around the state weren't convinced. I would love to use it if it was you know, a straightforward path to the projects we're trying to do. Nadia Hamey is a professional forester on the Central Coast, working on a series of 10 prescribed burns. That's when you intentionally set a fire to benefit the landscape. Hamey says she planned to use one CalVTP application for all of the burns, but she hit a bureaucratic wall. Now she's doing 10 separate applications using the old system. Forest Health Manager Jamie Tutelli-Lewis in Monterey County says there's a steep learning curve to CalVTP. Basically, we just haven't taken it up yet and felt comfortable enough with it to use it yet. And Project Manager Keith Rutledge in Mendocino County told me he hadn't even heard of it. So that's news to me. Nobody at Cal has brought anything up. I'll read about it for sure. I'm just looking it up while we're talking. Rutledge is leading a project to clear new evacuation roads, where two years ago, the Oak Fire destroyed dozens of homes and buildings. His team has completed a few miles under the old review system, but he says approvals have taken a while. The Newsom administration suggested we reach out to the Yuba Water Agency. Joanna Lassard is overseeing a 5,400-acre project in the Yuba County foothills, one of the roughly two dozen projects approved through CalVTP. She estimates the program reduced their approval time by about a year. We had the money, we had the people, we just needed the ability to get out there by completing our environmental compliance, and this really did streamline that. The state knows it needs to do more to ramp up its fire prevention efforts, but it's a sluggish process that has 85-year-old Luis Celaya in Mendocino County worried. It makes me very angry, very cynical, frustrated. When the Oak Fire hit, Celaya and thousands of others had to evacuate using the one road that leads down the hillside. The potential is so high that a fire could happen that could be disastrous. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. California's push for green energy could inadvertently harm one of its most famous species. As more and more wind turbines go up in the state, the companies behind them are looking to prevent unintended deaths of critically endangered California condors. Their plans are fairly simple. Breed more birds. KCRW's Matt Gillum has more. Decades of population declines due in large part to human activity left just 27 California condors alive in 1984. They were rounded up and a captive breeding program was started. Today, they're back from the cusp of extinction. More than 500 birds are flying freer in captivity. That success is why energy producers like the L.A. Department of Water and Power are seeking additional breeding efforts to offset condor deaths caused by wind farms. The agency estimates that over the span of 30 years, up to two wild condors could be struck and killed by wind turbines, and their two eggs or chicks would also perish. A proposal from the DWP includes spending more than a million dollars to raise more condors at the L.A. Zoo, just one of four facilities that hatches and rears the scavengers. Federal documents say that if the zoo added another breeding enclosure, the annual number of fledglings would go up by at least 10 percent, resulting in 15 more juvenile birds getting released into the wild over the course of a permit. Details of the proposal continue to be ironed out by the DWP and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, with a final plan eventually being presented to the Los Angeles City Council. For The California Report, I'm Matt Gillum. Support for The California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Stanford Healthcare, 
alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, April 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and have a good day. In regional news, six weeks after Sherry Papini was arrested and charged with faking her own kidnapping in 2016, the Reading woman has signed a plea deal and will admit that she orchestrated the hoax, her attorney told the Sacramento Bee today. Defense attorney William Portanova said Pepini, who is 39, signed a plea agreement this morning in which she will plead guilty to counts of lying to a federal officer and mail fraud. Pepini issued a statement through her attorney saying, quote, I am deeply ashamed of myself for my behavior and so sorry for the pain I've caused my family, my friends, all the good people who needlessly suffered because of my story and those who worked so hard to try to help me. I will work the rest of my life to make amends for what I have done. The Bee reported that the plea agreement has been delivered to prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Sacramento. It is expected to be assigned to a magistrate judge for a hearing this week. Papini was arrested by FBI agents March 3rd and charged with lying to federal agents and wire fraud following years of investigation into the supposed kidnap case. Authorities say her November 2, 2016 disappearance from her Shasta County home had nothing to do with the kidnapping. Court documents say she was staying at an ex-boyfriend's apartment in Costa Mesa. Her disappearance generated international headlines and rallies supporting her, as well as a GoFundMe account that raised $49,000. She also received $30,000 from the California Victim Compensation Board and used the money for therapy, ambulance services, and $1,000 to buy window blinds for her home, court documents say. Prosecutors have not yet filed a sentencing memo that details their recommended sentence. Also reported in today's B. Nurses and other healthcare workers at Sutter Health plan a one-day walkout Monday at hospitals in Auburn and Roseville and 13 others statewide after contract negotiations stalled, union leaders said. The strike, which will begin at 7 a.m. April 18th and end at 6.59 a.m. April 19th, will affect Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital, Sutter Roseville Medical Center, and Sutter Center for Psychiatry in Sacramento. In a news release, the California Nurses Association said its members are fighting to ensure safe staffing levels and to compel Sutter Health to comply with state mandates requiring hospitals to store a three-month supply of personal protective equipment, such as gloves and face masks. Turning to the weather, according to the National Weather Service forecast, our region will continue to have cool temperatures and a chance of rain and snow. This evening, Nevada City and Grass Valley will have a slight chance of rain and snow showers between 8 and 10. Tonight will be mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming mostly clear, with a low around 29. Wednesday will be partly sunny, with a high near 50, a low around 37, and showers likely after 11 p.m. New precipitation amounts between a quarter and half an inch are possible. Tonight in Truckee and Lake Tahoe will be partly cloudy with a slight chance of snow showers between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. and a low around 16. Southwest winds of 10 to 15 miles per hour are expected with gusts as high as 25 miles per hour. Wednesday will be mostly sunny with a high near 36, a 20% chance of snow showers and southwest winds of 10 to 15 miles per hour. 
Wednesday night will be mostly cloudy, with a low around 22 and a 40% chance of snow showers. New snow accumulation of 1 to 2 inches is possible. This evening in Sacramento and Woodland, increasing clouds with a low around 39 and winds of 6 to 13 miles per hour. Wednesday will be partly sunny, with a high near 63 and a low around 48. Showers are likely, mainly after 11 p.m., and winds gusting as high as 18 miles per hour. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch are possible. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Coming up next, Watching the Signs. KVMR's Paul Emery picks the brain of economist Gary Zimmerman on the economic indicators and reports we'll see in the next few weeks and what they might tell us about the future of inflation, the possibility of recession, and what's likely to happen to the cost of borrowing. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. It seems like there are a number of important economic reports and indicators that we have uh, just seen. They've just been released, or there's some others that will be published later this week. Which ones uh, are the most important ones to keep an eye on? Well, there are a number of reports and indicators that we can look at in the next couple of weeks to get information about the direction and you know movements in the economy. Things like the obviously the growth rate of the, the economy or GDP will be due out in about two weeks. Uh, we need to watch and monitor to see that you know consumer sentiment and consumer spending continues to help drive the economy. Um, last week's labor market data, which showed the uh, economy still adding lots of jobs, 455,000 jobs in March, you know, in the markets have tightened up. So that's that's another important you know market to watch. Then there's the inflation rate. Um, it has moved up to the six and seven, eight percent range and we'll get a new consumer price index reading this next week. So everybody will be watching that uh, when it comes out this week. Um, the minutes of the last Federal Reserve meeting are important. They also tell us what the policymakers were discussing when they raised the overnight target interest rate above zero um, in March. And you know, minutes also provide you know recent and and additionally um, recent comments from some of the policymakers are giving us you know signals about what they likely will do with policy and interest rates at their May and June meetings. What signals? Uh, are the Fed policymakers giving about what they will do with monetary policy in the next few months? Are they important? And should we actually pay attention to them? Oh, I think they are very important, Paul. And we we might start with the minutes of that March 15th, 16th Fed meeting. Uh, when they were released last week, the, they were released three weeks after each meeting. And the minutes made it very clear that many of the, many of the Fed policymakers are looking to raise the overnight federal funds target interest rate at a faster pace than they did in March. In March, the increase was only one quarter of a percent um you know we're 25 basis points for the market watchers out there uh but you know based on discussions in the minutes it sounds like and looks like larger increases are coming uh, probably a half a percent or 50 basis points at maybe both the may and june meetings um so you know the recent public comments by fed chair powell and other policymakers you know again you know 
seems that they think that they need to be moving faster uh, and you know raising rates not only faster but by larger amounts. So um, you know that's we should expect to see that um, at the next couple of meetings. And they're also talking about you know what might be called QT or quantitative tightening. Uh, the Fed will soon start letting $95 billion in bonds mature uh, and um, roll off their balance sheet. Um, and that puts upward pressure on the longer matured interest rates. So it's another important, inf- more important information coming out of the meeting. You know, and those higher interest rates will slow investment and likely slow consumer spending and the economy. And, um, you know, they should begin to reduce inflationary pressures in the economy. But, you know, questions are, you know, when and, and how much. Uh, one more question, Gary. How do you expect higher interest rates to affect um, like you and I or KVMR listeners that are listening right now? Yes, if we are borrowing, uh, we should expect to see higher market interest rates ahead. The the very low interest rates since the financial crisis, you know, near zero in many cases, you know, were the Fed's policy tool designed to help the economy rebound rapidly from the short but you know, very severe COVID recession. And now that the economy is about back to normal and the economy is running at or close to full employment, you know, we also now have a a spike in inflation. And, um, you know, as the Fed seeks to slow inflation, we should expect it, you know, higher interest rates on consumer and business loans are going to be out there and we're going to have to pay them and that there'll be higher bond market interest rates. We've seen that they've they've risen and and higher mortgage interest rates that are likely to slow the housing market somewhat. You know, how high might those interest rates go? That likely depends on how successful the Fed is in bringing down the inflation rate over the next year or two to a range that's in line with the Fed's longer run inflation goal of around 2%. Um, you know, it's it's also too. Re, re, we should remember that the inflation continue. If the inflation continues and is expected to continue for years at a high rate, uh, then interest rates will also rise to compensate lenders for their lost purchasing power caused by inflation. So, you know, there are important interest rate and policy decisions by the Fed here, and there are major challenges to get policy right. Um, you know, so that inflation falls to a reasonable rate, but the economy isn't pushed into a recession. So, yeah. Interesting times. Okay. A lot of information there, Gary. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we'll, we'll all You're figure right. it out out here in local economy land, and we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks and see what's next. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Thank Take you, care. Gary. Appreciate it. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. Money Matters host Mark Cuniberti also has been thinking about the complicated cross-currents of our global economy. Inflation, fuel prices, monetary policy, they're blowing the stock market all over the place. And where it will stop, not even Mark knows. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cuniberti. The obvious question for investors at this point in time is if the crash in stocks that took out the first 10 weeks of this year over, or are we just seeing a technical bounce in the indexes only to be followed by another painful round of more red sometime in the near future? Analysts are split on what is to come, and I have to admit where this thing could go is a crapshoot. I hate using that term when it comes to the stock market, but there is much to fear that could move stocks down. And on the other hand, 
and other influences that might lead to a continuing recovery in equity prices. On the negative side, currency events scare the hell out of me. Just think the Greece default or other sovereign events, sovereign means national events, that made the news in recent decades when an entire country gets into trouble either domestically with its economy or globally with its currency. This kind of event can wreak havoc on world markets. And right now, the economies of the world are at an inflection point due to COVID, inflationary pressures, and global conflicts. Interest rate manipulations by a G7 country, in which the biggest dog in the fight is the USA, can also royal global financial systems. The U.S. Federal Reserve has started and will continue to raise interest rates in an attempt to harness inflation. The interest rate moves they will make as a result of their attempt to address rising prices have an historical tendency to slow stock markets and will likely put negative pressure on equities. As a side note, the continued bite of inflation could also put a damper on consumer spending as a whole. Although energy prices are a big part of the pain of inflation. Washington is flip-flopping again on oil companies once again. Initially, Washington was against more drilling. Biden pleads now to these same companies during his press conference March 31st to increase drilling to increase supply. And then he coupled that with proposed fines if the drill leases sit idle. Oil execs are probably rolling their eyes in distrust and may continue to play the middle ground in response to their inability to know where Washington will go next as it pertains to their business, which is oil drilling. Always lurking to throw markets a curveball, of course, a black swan event is a random and unforeseen event like 9-11. It's always a threat, but when they happen, since they are random, we can do little to prepare for them. On the plus side, the reopening of America is well underway and the consumer is ready to travel, fake dine out, and shop. From a year-to-year over comparison, there is nowhere to go but up, really, as people start to re-engage many industries that were previously hurt by the shutdowns will start to see their revenues climb and their stock prices should reflect that. The monetary considerations are many, some positive and, again, some negative. Federal spending has been and continues to be off the charts positive. It is said, don't fight the Fed. What that means is, as federal spending increases, much of that spending ends up in the stock market. Although many federal COVID spending programs are done with, there is still a lot of money in the pipeline, and that will continue to flow into the economy. Incredibly, there are still more programs working their way through Congress, and if passed, even more funds will be showered down onto the consumer and into business pocketbooks. All in all, there are many cross-currents to consider, and the final result of all these different events on the markets is yet to be seen. The sum of the negatives and positives will definitely jerk markets all over the place. That I'm pretty sure of, and where it stops, nobody really knows, including this analyst. One thing is for certain, however... Many of these stay-at-home stocks have been hammered badly in the first three months of 2022. And if an investor is careful and does his or her research, a slow accumulation of beaten down but still good companies may, I say may, bode well for the long-term investor. That's it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are not meant as investment advice and are the opinion of myself and may not reflect those of this radio station, its staff, management, or underwriters. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cunaberti.
That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, Food Sleuth takes a multi-layered look at why losing one's sense of taste and smell is a profound experience for humans. Listen in as host Melinda Gemmelgarn talks to a researcher on a mission to investigate COVID-related loss of taste and smell and how it might be remedied. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. Check out our website, kvmr.org, to hear expanded versions of many of our stories and interviews. Or listen to the KVMR Evening News and Steve Baker's Morning Updates wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR Community Radio gets support from you, our valued listeners, and from MEC Builds, Nevada County roofing contractor with over 20 years of experience, providing complete roofing services, gutter products, sun tunnels, and skylights. MEC Showroom is at 316 Colfax Avenue, Grass Valley, MECBuilds.com, and Briar Patch Food Co-op, owned and supported by the community, offering organically grown and locally sourced fruits and veggies, with curbside pickup, 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley, online at briarpatch.coop. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Wednesday evening for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.